And so the so ultimately, so for the audience, how I define Tequity, and I'll go back to the piece that I wrote for ASCD, I define Tequity as merging the effective use of educational technologies with culturally responsive and culturally relevant learning experiences to support learner development of essential skills. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All of the Above. The show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. This is year 18 in the classroom for me, and this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Man, we want to send a super warm welcome to everybody who might be joining us for the first time. Jeff, I don't know if you realize this, but we are now available on Spotify. Well, we've always been available on Spotify, but Spotify will actually automatically play the video version. Spotify is getting into the video content game, and we were one of the shows that was approved to have a video format in Spotify. So if you are listening on the Spotify app, on your phone, if you actually like look at the logo, it's probably moving. That's us talking to you right now. Click on that and the full video experience will be right there for you if that's what uh, you wanna check out. And the reason why we can provide such high quality video content is because we have had support from a lot of really dope AOTA listeners and viewers who have helped us purchase these cameras and lighting setups and all that stuff. And we recently received some support from Matthew G and Rachel M. So shout out to y'all. We don't know if you want your full names out there, so we'll just leave it at that. Matthew and Rachel, shout out to y'all and everybody else who has contributed to the growth of all of the above. Jeff, somebody might be looking at your face right now for the first time. They might've been listening for all 82 other episodes and now they're like, oh, that's Jeffrey Garrett. That's what he looks like. Well, I, I will just say I'm sorry, and uh, <laughs> sorry to disappoint uh, <laughs> if that is you. Hello, and uh, my bad. Um, no, you know, I think I look okay here. I clean up all right for the show. You, you know? clean up more than uh, all right. <laughs> uh, no, welcome uh, very sincerely to uh, folks who are new to the All the Above family and listening, watching for the first time, and I want to echo, co-sign on your show. Shout outs to Matthew and Rachel for your generous contributions. It really does make a huge difference because, um, you know, it helps us get the equipment here for the studios, uh, the website hosting fees, any upgrades you want to make to our, you know, our uh, sound equipment, cameras, lenses, all that good stuff. So really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, let's let's have a good time here together in the all the above universe. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, Jeff, it is. Um the end or beginning, I think this this is the end of Thanksgiving break, I think, for, for most folks. And we only got a couple yeah. weeks left and then it's the, the holiday. So very busy time of year in education. So much going on within the world of ed education, as always. So for this episode here, Jeff, what is on the agenda today? Well, Manuel, as usual, we got a good one for everybody. And uh, today we have a very special guest coming on. His name is Ken Shelton. And he is an expert in many things, a longtime educator, expert in the field of educational technology and, um, you know, digital literacy and uh, expansion of opportunity, of equity, techquity, as he would say, I think, 
for um, for students, particularly students in, in marginalized communities, um, with getting access to uh, to the broad world of technology and the kind of digital world that students interact with and engage with, and the role that school plays in supporting that. Um, so Ken's going to come on talk to us about a bunch of really fascinating issues related uh, to this world of education technology and equity in the realm of education technology in, in this time, Manuel, where, you know, we saw millions and millions and millions of more kids on Chromebooks and iPads and that sort of thing. But, but have we really reached a spot where we could say we have digital and, and technological equity right now? So we're going to dig deeper into that today with Ken. It's going to be a great conversation. You definitely don't want to miss it. Sounds dope. Sounds dope. Now, Ken, he's worked with a lot of districts and been part of a lot of conferences, published a lot of stuff. He's a really big time, big time educator out there. And I I don't know if we have information about where he got his his education. I don't know what university maybe he went to to have such yeah, I don't know. Such success I, and yeah. such brilliance around him. I don't unsure. Unsure. I guess it remains a mystery, Manuel. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps it shall remain a mystery. Or we could just say it, UCLA, number one public university in the world. You know what it do. All right, folks. Mm -hmm. But up next, we have our Do Now segment, where we take a look at recent news and headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we gonna do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, today uh, it's gonna be very important that uh, we give some feedback. So we got a report card letting folks know they're great. Report card right as the holidays roll around, Jeff. That is, that's some 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 sinister stuff, man. These these <laughs> these kids just want their holiday presents, and you're gonna ruin it with some. Well, maybe these will be good grades. Maybe these will be good grades. <laughs> they tend not to be good grades on this maybe. show. They tend not yeah. to be good grades on the show. But let's take a look. Uh, All right, Jeff. The first grade is an S. Ah, uh, okay. That's uh, the only S grade that I know of, Manuel, is uh, S for satisfactory. Um, hashtag, uh, you know, pass fail. Um, so satisfactory, right? Yeah, no, it's not satisfactory, but it has me thinking about like, what are we saying when we say like satisfactory to a student? Like for us, that's the, uh, the citizenship grade can be satisfactory. So it's like, you're not great, but you're not terrible. You're satisfactory. In any case, this S stands for screen because, you know, students are on their screens quite a bit these days. I don't know if you noticed, Jeff, but um, a lot of screen time going on. And this, this, uh, this headline deals with a study out of UCLA looking at college students who are on their screens during college lectures. And it's an interesting little study. So let's get into the details and see sort of how this might apply or uh, might inform us as we look at education, you know, in, in a more broad sense than just those college lectures. But in this case, this interesting new study comes out of UCLA, as I said. Uh, it was a study done by psychology professor Patricia M. Greenfield and graduate students Laura Reinhardt and Salvador Vasquez. 
As we know, in many college classrooms, student use of electronic devices is commonplace. Some students say that the use of a laptop or other digital device helps them with their studies. However, they have also been known to use them sometimes, maybe a little bit, for purposes that might distract them and others around them. As the use of devices in classrooms has increased, professors have grown concerned with some limiting or even prohibiting student use during lectures or classes. Research has shown that such bans improve student performance, but students have been known to push back, expressing their frustrations in teacher evaluations. A recent study titled The Impact of Screen-Free Zones in an Undergraduate Psychology Classroom, Assessing Exam Performance and Instructor Evaluations in Two Quasi-Experiments. This study seeks to shed some light on this standoff over screen time. In the first experiment, one class served as the control group and had no screen restrictions, while students in another class were shown findings about the negative use of screen devices in the classroom and were told that they could only use devices if they sat in a screen section in the back of the lecture hall. The analysis found a significant difference in final exam scores in favor of the class with screen restrictions, with students scoring on average 4% higher on their final exam. In a separate experiment, students were again presented research about the negative use of screen devices. However, students who wanted to be on screen devices sat on one half of the room while the screen-free zone was used in the other half. The analysis revealed significant positive correlations between the amount of time spent in the screen-free section during lecture and scores on the midterm exam and the final, with students sitting in the screen-free zone during lectures scoring higher on both exams. Students who began and remained in the no-screen section, a quote-unquote never-screen group, performed best on the final exam. Additionally, students who began to use their screens less midway through the course saw, on average, a 4% increase from their midterm scores to their final exam scores. So, Jeff, some weird stuff going on in these college lecture halls. Screen students sit on one half, other half, no screens allowed, or screens in the back in one of these experiments. Look like there were some gains. What are your thoughts here about these um, screen usage experiments during college lectures? Yeah, well, I have to say, Manuel, I found this article to be really fascinating. It's super nerdy in just my uh, it is. my my kind of way, uh, and I think it's kind of cool that they did like you know sort of live human experimentation in this way. You know, of course, in a you know ethical manner, I guess, but. Um, but uh, I thought it was fascinating on a couple of levels. So first of all, like, let's just be real, people. Screens are distracting to folks. They just are. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're old and crusty if you have this opinion. But like, the reality is all of us know, man, all of us know in every context in life, screens have very high distraction potential. Now that is not to say screens are the devil. That is not to say that uh, a person cannot be using the device with a screen to assist them in their learning. For example, taking notes or, you know, looking up something in the moment that they might be confused about that actually helps them like better follow what's being said in the lecture or this sort of thing, right? Um, so like, yes, the potential for good is there. However, the reality is, is more distracting for many people than it is, uh, you know, than it is actually like assisting in the learning. 
in particular when the activity for the learning is pay attention to the professor's lecture, right? Or pay attention to what someone else is doing or saying in the classroom. So, I, you know, I, I appreciate the findings that they came up with. I hope that the kind of approach that they landed on, which was that sort of side by side, you know, like if you look out onto the class, the, the section to the left is no screens, the section to the right is screens, and people can you know, be informed about the research and kind of choose which side they want to sit on. Actually sounds like a really interesting approach that, uh, you know, schools may want to consider um, in the future. And Manuel, what is fascinating about this to me is, and I know this wasn't the scope of the study, but maybe part of what's going on is that colleges are notorious for having bad teaching, frankly, in many cases, and just long, boring lectures, right? So maybe what's also being offered here is, is uh, a physical manifestation in the form of the screen I'm going to pay attention to instead of your boring lecture. Um, maybe what's being offered is some feedback about the fact that like your teaching is whack and we should be doing some different things instructionally in the classroom to better engage the audience. And I don't mean you could never lecture, but I mean like, you know, the two, three hour lecture where people are just scribbling down notes, like, mm, that's not great teaching, right? I mean, you have to be a really compelling speaker to speak for that long and have people pay attention. Like, the you know, Martin Luther King couldn't speak for three hours and have people not get bored, okay? So, uh, you know, I think there's some interesting tidbits for here uh, in this study here, Manuel, that give us a lot to think about just as like a, a profession of educators. So what's, what's your take? You being in the classroom every day with kids on devices all the time or presumably a lot of the time, uh, very curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, this was an interesting experiment for sure. And one thing I should note is that they also looked at the teacher or professor evaluations in each case and the class where the students were made to be in the back of the lecture hall if they wanted to be on screens. Those evaluations were much harsher than the class where students were allowed the option of sitting towards the left or sitting towards the right. Um, in that case, students felt better or they felt the policy was a little more fair uh, than the other class. And yeah, I, th I think that's a pretty good approach, at least as far as the college college space is concerned. It reminds me of a professor that I had for a geography class. I don't remember the professor. I don't remember the details of the geography class. It was one of those ge uh, general elective classes that I had and or that we all take. And I remember the professor like losing his mind over a student being on the school newspaper, like like reading the Daily Bruin or reading the school newspaper during lecture. He was like, stop lecture. And he was like, if you are here to read a newspaper, you simply don't need to be in this lecture hall. You could go with that. And he's just like, just out of nowhere, just called the student out. And he was so angry the way he said it. And this story made me think of that professor and like, I wonder how that guy's doing, because that was before everybody was on laptops or iPhones during lecture. And as screen use has become ubiquitous, I, I imagine that professor isn't really enjoying, or it, I don't even know if he's still you know, teaching in the classroom, but I, I'm, I'm sure he really struggled with that. And as a classroom teacher, 
I've struggled with it in different ways, like every single classroom teacher has, especially now post-pandemic. And for me, it's it's really trying to help the students understand that while they think they can multitask, while they think they are listening, um, it's it's really, really challenging for anybody to really do that with a screen right in front of them, especially a screen that is producing entertainment. So yeah, that that's really challenging. So for me as a teacher, it's I've been taking the approach of trying to just set boundaries. I used to, there was a time in my teaching career where I was much like a, a Robocop type, type of teacher and I would confiscate anything and just like real, like just, just heavy handed quote unquote classroom management. And I've unlearned all that and a much more humanizing space in my classroom now. And it's for me, it's really about trying to help students understand boundaries and, and understand and have some uh, level of like kind of self-control when it comes to their like active engagement in the class. But there are definitely students where that, that ain't working. And I just got to like stay on them about not being on their devices. I don't know what the future holds in this case, man, because you can't just not have devices in the classroom anymore. Uh, and in college lectures, especially like a lot of these students who are on screens are on screens because they take their notes that way. So, you know, the article mentioned that there's the, uh, a line of thinking that pen and paper notes help students focus more on what's actually being said. So in the case of students wanting to take notes on their laptops, maybe professors need to um, do more to help students understand that perhaps taking notes on pen and paper will help them better um, long-term. So so there's that, but yeah, I, th I just think this is a challenge that us teachers are gonna be dealing with for a very long time. I don't wanna be in a school where devices are strictly banned and outlawed. I don't wanna be in a school where no students are paying attention to anything because all they're doing is drowning in the social media um, that we have like gifted this generation that they're addicted to yeah. and it's not even their own fault. It's how they were raised and we know the impact that social media has had on just like students and their like, anxiety that when they are not, when they don't have their phone on them or when the phone buzzes, but they can't see what the notification is. And it's just like, we know what that's done to kids and it's a tough future ahead, but I like the idea of flexible policies, policies where like, look, it's bad to be on the screen, but if you're gonna do that, I'm gonna have you sit on this side of the classroom so you're not distracting the people around you. I don't wanna see high school's teachers do that necessarily, but you know, for college, big college auditorium lectures, sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, before I respond, I do want to say two things there. First of all, I love how you said uh, that we have gifted social media to the generation. Yeah, I don't mean generation. that word. We have cursed them <laughs> as, with social media. Though, how about that? As though it wasn't a plague. Uh, yeah. And then second of all, uh, Manuel as Robocop uh, is, is hilarious to me Dude, I was, on many man. levels. Uh, first of all, because I can't even imagine that uh, version of you. And second of all, because the movie Robocop was recently on television and I I watched part of it again. I can't remember which of the Robocops it was, but um, I watched part of it. And, you know, as as is like Hollywood is wont to do, Manuel, it was both like super cool and woke and also like super problematic. Like the fact that they're critiquing the corporate takeover of, you know, privatization of police and prisons and these sorts of things, uh, you know, fascinating. And then also, they just invented a Detroit that's full of white people, dude. <laughs> like they literally made true. Detroit just mad white people. So um, total non sequitur side note, but just wanted to share that with uh, with our <laughs> our audience. Uh, moment of reminiscence on RoboCop. Um, but to your point, man. Well, I I would actually say, and I know a couple folks who are professors that do this. I'm okay with faculty saying, you know what, this is going to be a screen free environment. Um, I think that's actually okay. I mean, it, it, it's 
it, you know, I could see some challenges, right? Like, of course, they need to make sure they're offering space for like accommodation for people who are using right. it for particular special needs or that sort of thing. But um, I'm fine. I think there's value in the human experience that the screen interferes with. Now, if what you're saying is no screens and I'm going to lecture for the next 90 minutes or two hours and you all just have to stare at me, then I'm not, you know, I'm like, mm, maybe not. But, you know, if we have, if we're sitting in a, you know, circle, we're in more of a seminar mode, like, yeah, dude, put the screens away. We're here to discuss. We're here to talk and you don't need a screen for that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's perhaps even a, a more of a range of responses to this kind of data that, that might be good um, for higher ed. Um, and frankly, in the K-12 system as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I... I I hear you on that. I, if I were a professor, I imagine I'd want a screen-free zone. But that would be hard to do, I think, in the modern context of college. And just like we're, we're ushering in a whole generation of students who spent the last year and a half learning through digital context because of the pandemic. So then to have them go to college and be like, okay, all that stuff you've gotten acclimated to. Yeah, no more of that. Take out the paper, take out the pencil. I think that could be difficult, but you know. We shall see. None of this is easy. None of this will be easy as, as you know, technology continues to impact the way students learn and the way we interact and all that good stuff. But Jeff, that was a college-related story, mostly, you know, college study. Uh, let's get a story that's like not college-related because, you know, a lot of our listeners are not in the higher ed space, you know, and you and I are not in the higher ed space. So let's get a non-college-related story, Jeff. What do we have for our next why, grade? Why are you always trying to set me up, Manuel? See, this, this uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is a perfect example of uh, of just the little indignities that I have to deal with. Here, I don't know what you're uh, talking about. On all of the above, okay? Do we have an HR department? Could I could I lodge a complaint somewhere? I wish we were big <laughs> enough to have an HR department. That would be fantastic, folks. If you want to contribute to the growth of all of the above, aotshield.com/support. Yes, exactly. Okay, uh, so our second grade uh, for today's report card, Manuel, is frowny face frowny face. Okay, so yes. we do have a story here about the little ones because isn't that how we assess little kids, Jeff? It's either a frowny face or a happy face on your on your homework? Yeah, yeah, like a gold star, you know, silver star. Uh, yeah, <laughs> totally like that. equitable, non-problematic, good stuff. Yes, yes. Well, this particular frowny face, Manuel, is the frowny face that all of the boys and men, apparently, uh, or many of the boys and men are making uh, about the recent trends in data for four-year college acceptance and graduation, uh, which is hmm. showing that uh, a, a growing and continuing trend um, uh, of a gap growing between um, female success in college and male success in college. So, um, and of course, gender is more of a spectrum than it is just that binary, and we don't have data. Uh, on the other parts of the spectrum. But we're going to talk about what we do have today, Manuel. So let's get into this story. Um, this story comes to us from the Pew Research Center uh, by Kim Parker. And uh, the growing gender gap in higher education, both in enrollment and graduation rates, has been a topic of recent debate in many circles. 
Women's educational gains have occurred alongside their growing labor force participation, as well as structural changes in the economy. The implications of the growing gap in educational attainment for men are significant, as research has shown the strong correlation between college completion and lifetime earnings and wealth accumulation. Young women are more likely to be enrolled in college today than young men. And among all adults, women are more likely than men to have a four-year college degree. The gap in college completion is even wider among younger adults, with 46% of women ages 25 to 34 completing a four-year degree, compared to just 36% of men. Now, overall, only 38% of adults 25 and older in the United States have a four-year degree. Women are more likely than men, 44% to 39%, to say that not being able to afford college is a major reason why they don't yet have a bachelor's degree. Men and women are about equally likely to say needing to work to help support their family has been a major impediment to not being able to graduate. And men are more likely than women to point to factors that have more to do with personal choice. For example, roughly one third of men without a bachelor's degree say a major reason they didn't complete colleges, college is that they just didn't want to. When only one in four women say the same. So Manuel, some fascinating data here. Um, I can hear the rumble in the background of our uh, nut job men's rights folks out there uh, <laughs> saying, see, the, you know, the liberal leftist cultural Marxist have weakened man and man is now the victim. Um, so we're just, we're just going to say they can have that conversation over there if they want to. We're going to talk in a rational uh, reasonable space about this data. And uh, Manuel, what say you? Yeah, well, I'm not going to be able to like begin to pretend to understand it, all, all the reasons why this gender gap in college attainment is, is growing. However, Jeff, you might recall at our orientation to be members of the woke mob, we were instructed to always think about race and in this mm. case, this gender gap story, my immediate thinking was, well, I wonder if there are differences along racial lines, particularly since as a high school teacher, the majority of my students, but not all, are Black or Latinx. The majority of students, but not all, are what would be deemed low income. So when it comes to racial lines and perhaps income differences, I was curious what the data would say for that. And in this story, towards the second half of, of the write-up, they get into that. And what we find is there are significant differences by race. And those differences cause me to wonder if this is much of a, a gender gap versus a something going on with one particular subset of respondents to this particular survey. So um, case in point, it said 33% of white students who never received their college degree or didn't stay in college to earn their college degree, 33% of them said they simply didn't want to go to school compared to only 22% and 23% of black and Latinx students. So 33% of white respondents said, yeah, I just didn't want to go to school. I wasn't really feeling it. Uh, whereas uh, the black and Latinx respondents, it was only 22% for the black respondents and 23% for the Latinx respondents. And then when you break that down into gender lines, 
we find that 39% of white men said they, quote, just didn't want to. 39% of white men said they simply didn't want to go to college as compared to 27% of white women. But then when you look at the Black and Latinx respondents, there was no gender difference on this question of, like, on this, on this idea of, I simply didn't want to go back to school or I just didn't want to go to college. So 39% of white men just didn't want to. And those numbers are the standout numbers here that I think probably drive the general view of this gender gap. It's really a question, I think, of what has changed or what has happened over the course of the last several decades when it comes to how we view college and who has access to college and what role college plays and college degrees play in our economy and our social uh, system that has led to so many white men not wanting to or not feeling like they needed to. So that's where I'm at, Jeff, because to me, buried in the details is that. So I'm sure there are, obviously, there are gender differences um, for all these different groups, probably. But the the actual write-up doesn't say anything about the differences between black men and black women on these these surveys or uh, Latinx men and Latinx women on these surveys. It does say there isn't much gender difference in those groups when it comes to the overall, did I want to go to school or not? Yeah, I believe uh, it did say, Manuel, that there was not a significant difference between the genders on those question responses for um, for black and brown folks. Um, so they didn't uh, didn't re- didn't narrate the data in the article. Um, I you know I so I hear your point. I definitely think you know the the article was certainly not really talking in an intersectional way. It talked mostly about either. What's the data by gender or what's the data by race? Not very much um, looking at race and gender together. Totally valid um, question and and interpretation of of things there from that standpoint. To me, though, it does raise some interesting questions because we've seen for the last two decades a a slow but growing trend of, you know, uh, uh, women versus men, women outnumbering men. Um, in the college ranks, right? Women graduating at higher rates than men, women being accepted at higher rates than men, both in undergraduate programs and in many cases in graduate programs as well. And you know, one has to to really ask the question. I think Manuel, of like, well, what is going on? And not from the standpoint of like a you know, um, not from the standpoint of defensiveness. Right. But from the standpoint of like, this is interesting data. And what are we seeing? Are we just seeing this sort of end result or, you know, longer term result of the corrections that had been made in response to just the, you know, forever long uh, sexism, sexism and patriarchy that kept women out of college. Right. And like maybe if we if we had started uh, this way in the beginning, these numbers would have been this way anyways. Right. Um, So that's a possibility. And also, I think, um, you know, we also are seeing in the K-12 system some like antecedent sort of factors here that I think also lend themselves to uh, to not being surprised by this data. Right. So like some of the skill sets that are very much uh, privileged and prized in school that helps you get ready to be a competitive applicant for college, for example, sitting still for long periods of time, for example, um, you know, not physically uh, roughhousing or behaving in physically active ways that admittedly could become, you know, mildly dangerous in some, you know, in some contexts in school, right? Those are behaviors that uh, at least 
in my experience, tend to um, happen, you know, tend to correlate often with gender, right? That like very often it is boys who struggle more with just like sitting still and being quiet and paying attention for longer windows of time in school. And it's not like girls can do that forever, but there does tend to be a gap there, right? Um, and so there's, there's the results of some of those kind of things that like school says, this is what you have to do to be successful, are those things, you know, things that are making it difficult for boys to succeed in school and be on that sort of track to be successful for college, I think is a valid question to ask ourselves. Now, maybe someone who's done, you know, research on this or the data on this would suggest that like what I'm saying isn't held up by the data. Um, so, you know, totally open to being corrected if there's something out there that's, that, you know, that just kind of proves me wrong. But that would be one aspect of, of a theory in my head about like what's going on that might be explaining this data. Because I don't think the data is, you know, boys are, are just like dumber than we thought or like less capable of succeeding at the college level than we thought. I think the opposite of that is true, that like girls are much smarter and more capable than we used to allow ourselves to see and value and recognize because of how our systems of oppression work. And there is something here that makes me wonder, like, what, what are we doing and how are our systems supporting and cultivating the, you know, the strengths and, and talents of our boys um, as well? And so, I, you know, I'm not sure uh, what all to, to do about that, but it raises that question for me. Yeah, all that is right. And I, I, like I said at the top, I cannot even pretend to know why these numbers are coming out the way they're coming, um, coming out. However, I'm just struck by the fact that on the, the overall question of like reasons why they didn't go to college, the I didn't want to or I didn't feel the need to. I didn't want to do more school like for but there you, not to be a gender believe, difference for uh, black respondents that, or uh, Hispanic respondents. That, to me, that's big. To me, that's big. That 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 to me indicates something much bigger than um, just the overall just gender difference in, in educational attainment, although that's obviously there. So we need, we need an intersectional research piece on this. I'm sure it exists. If you're listening or watching this show, shoot that our way because I am very curious. In this particular article, the stock photo at the top was a black woman in a cap and gown, yet the article didn't really go into where black women specifically fit in this uh, research here. So send that our way. I, I, I wonder though, Manuel, that, that you know, percentage of white males who didn't go to college who said, I didn't go because I didn't want to. I wonder like, what really does that response mean, right? Does that response mean like school sucks and I don't wanna have this negative experience and school continue? Does this mean I couldn't afford it, but I'm too, you know, that sort of hits at my pride to, to talk about that. So I'm just gonna say, I didn't want to. That's why I didn't go. I, I would I would also question what that really means um, when people gave that that kind of response. So that that would be interesting to learn more about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, folks, that about does it for this report card. We had a an S and a frowny face. Very uh, progressive grading we're doing over here on all of the above, I suppose. Satisfactory and frowny face. Oh, wait, that S stood for, for screens. Some of you might be watching us on your screen right now. And if so, please hit that thumbs up. We appreciate y'all. Up next is our seminar. We'll have a super dope conversation, digging in a little bit more into this uh, idea of technology, speaking of screens. So that's coming up next. Stay tuned.
Hey folks, thanks so much for watching all the above. We really appreciate you and we need your support. This is just a two person operation. It's me and Manuel and every little bit you can offer helps us keep bringing great content to you. All you have to do is go to our website. It's aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There you can find all the ways you can help support great content here and all the above. We're on Venmo, Cash App, and you can become a monthly supporter on our Anchor page. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you here with us, and it is our distinguished pleasure to have with us today an amazing guest. We have uh, an educator, a speaker, someone with a wealth of expertise in the realm of educational technology. Ken Shelton is with us. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and it's a pleasure to be here. All right. You mentioned expertise. That's only two things. I, I like to think that I have some degree of expertise on a whole bunch of things. Well, yes. Let, let me not uh, <laughs> let me not narrow that list, folks. And let me tell you a little bit more about our guest, Ken Shelton here. Uh, Ken has been an educator for over 20 years and spent most of his classroom experience teaching technology at the middle school level. Ken is an Apple Distinguished Educator, a Microsoft Innovative Educator Expert, and a Google Certified Innovator as well. Ken has worked extensively at the policy level with a number of state departments of education, ministries of education, nonprofits, and was previously appointed to the Education Technology Task Force formed by the California State Superintendent of Public Instruction. Ken is a consultant, regularly gives keynote addresses, presentations, and leads workshops covering a variety of topics regarding educational technology, equity and inclusion, multimedia literacy, and instructional design. Ken holds an MA in education with a specialization in educational technology, as well as new media design and production. So, Ken Shelton, uh, so excited to have you here, and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, some UCLA brewing dopeness in the oh, brewing. We appreciate you <laughs> for sure. Gotta now, throw unfortunately, that in the first question, Jeff just had to frame it around a, a study that came out of USC. But in any case, you know, props to USC. They do some good stuff over there. And at the, so the study out of the USC Annenberg School showed that one third of families in the Los Angeles Unified School District lacked access to broadband service. So one third of families across LA Unified lacked access to, to broadband. But when we break that study down into particular communities, the most marginalized communities across Los Angeles, Boyle Heights, East LA, South Los Angeles, Watts, in those cases, families in those neighborhoods, only about 43 to 50% had access to broadband at all. So a lot has been done about this, especially over the course of the pandemic to try to get internet access, broadband access into different households and get devices into kids' hands. But a lot of those, a lot of those moves have been temporary and a lot still needs to be done. So let's begin our conversation with that. When it comes to the pandemic and access to broadband internet service and technology, what did we learn from, from these last several months and, and year and a half of pandemic? And um, where do we go from here? Yeah, so that study is critical. And uh, even though it came out of USC, it's still um, hat tip to the Dean over at the Grad School of Education, Dr. Pedro Noguera, who is uh, one of my personal heroes and a friend of mine. 
You know, the thing is, is um, what people discovered during the pandemic had existed long before the pandemic. It just forced it to the surface. And uh, even with what you brought up, you know, the thing, what it really boils down to is this, is what what educators and what really what society needs to recognize are, are three critical things around that. One is it's long past time that the internet be designated as a utility. And the thing is, is once you designate it as a utility, that requires a significant amount of investment by, by local, state, and federal government. Uh, it ensures that we have the infrastructure in place uh, to be able to access the internet. Uh, and it also ensures that whatever services are provided, they have to be affordable to all uh, you know, all consumers, if you will. Um, I think that the internet at this point is just as critical as water and power. Um, because if you think about all the ways in which we use the internet for everything from communicating to banking to education, all those sorts of things. Now, the communities that you mentioned, uh, I would I would add that while that study focused on LA Unified, that's consistent with all of our major metropolitan areas. Uh, the term that I like to use, uh, actually, let me rephrase that. The term that I use, I don't like the fact that I use it, is digital redlining. Because there is a, if you were to look at a, a map, let's say, if you will, of a major metropolitan area, it's not a coincidence that we could look at economically uh, under-resourced and over-exploited areas and then be able to identify with a high degree of certainty whether or not uh, internet access is available. And actually, I should qualify that. Broadband internet access is available. Uh, and so then even adding to that, you know, you mentioned about what what was going on with the pandemic, where a lot of my friends who were superintendents were handing out hotspots to families and things like that. That still requires a, 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 a significant um, a significant uh, connection via cell towers. Well, guess what? You can go in a lot of areas here in L.A. and other, elsewhere where you're in the city and you don't have a good cell signal. So you see, all it did was, it was what I call educational triage. It was like, we need to do this now. We need to do this now. Okay, yes, but that is addressing a symptom, not the disease. Disease is the lack of accessibility in the first place. And that lack of accessibility is usually along two lines, usually along social class and geography. And in some cases, in major metropolitan areas, that's where those two intersect. So I think the most important thing to take from all of this is to ask the big questions as to why is it that in, uh, you know, in our country, I can go to areas where my cell phone signal doesn't exist. Why is it that many of the families that have children in schools don't have internet access, or if they do, it's inadequate. Uh, and further to that point, what's going on with the lack of an infrastructure in the first place? So you all mentioned even in my bio, some of the work that I did with our previous state superintendent, uh, the whole theme of that task force was no child left offline. And it was literally looking at how do we leverage our relationships with the uh, the telcos here in California, with the tech companies, so that we can ensure that you have ubiquitous broadband access throughout the state. Of course, it doesn't exist right now. And I would even argue with that study, it said one third, but Let's 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 go to raw numbers. So roughly, I know they've had a decline, but roughly there's about 900,000 students in LA Unified. That's 300,000 students. That's more than most most school districts in the country, except for the really large ones. So even though even though we have this number of one third, I always encourage folks when you read data or something like that, apply that number in in real relevant context. That's 300,000 kids that don't have access. Why is that even like, okay? So ultimately my big push with all educators is 
do whatever you can to trouble the narrative and add to the narrative that internet access should be ubiquitous. It should be a utility. And, uh, and I know there are a number of organizations that are working on um, petitions and uh, lobbying elected officials. My whole thing is if the elected officials aren't listening, then don't reelect them. Yeah, Ken, you, your uh, words here resonate with me on a on a very deep level. I remember um, in the in the sort of height of the lockdown period of the pandemic, being immersed <laughs> with our schools in the work of we've got to get hotspots and devices, you know, out to families, and really sitting down with some of my colleagues and saying, you know, this is what we're doing is what needs to be done in this moment. So, you know, I'm not I'm not complaining about that, but also saying this is crazy. Like if, if the water wasn't working in the public housing developments in South L.A. and Watts, we wouldn't call out the educators to go bring water to the family. Right. Like right. like we, there is a there's a public infrastructure that ensures that every place that's that is approved for human beings to live has water and, you know, sewage and right. Like there's codes for these things. Right. And uh, and yet for some reason, even in this day and age where Internet home Internet service is vital, equally vital to electricity or water, other sorts of things in order to function in modern society successfully. Um, we, we have nothing of the same type of, of infrastructure or even expectation um, in place there, which is which is is fascinating. Such an important point. Um, you also can recently had a piece in ASCD's educational leadership uh, back in September. Uh, so congrats on that. And um, your piece was titled Tequity, Going from Digital Poverty to Digital Inclusion. And in that piece, you argued that technology distributed and used equitably enables opportunity and voice, dismantles barriers around learner exceptionalities, democratizes access to information, and disrupts racial and economic privilege hierarchies. Um, that is a, a profound uh, statement there, and really would just love to have you tell us a bit more about what you meant there, and also uh, help us understand this, this phrase um, that I don't know if you coined it, but that was the first place I heard it, was tequity. Tell us, uh, what, what does that mean? So, yeah, so tequity was a, a term that was um, identified by a group of educators, some of which are friends of mine, um, probably about 10 years ago. Uh, because they were looking at, uh, at that time, why certain schools had, for example, access to devices, whereas others didn't. So you had the whole idea around the equity piece, which is the access and opportunity. And then that access and opportunity as it directly correlates to uh, the use of technology. So they went through and they came up with this, this term. And of course, when I saw it, I'm like, that's the word that I've been missing from my vernacular, because I've been talking about this for years and years and years. Now I now that's perfect. And so the so ultimately, so for the audience, how I define tequity, and I'll go back to the piece that I wrote for ASCD, I define tequity as merging the effective use of educational technologies with culturally responsive and culturally relevant learning experiences to support learner development of essential skills. And that directly connects to the, the things that you just mentioned out of my article. Because ultimately, one, you have to think about how technology democratizes access to information. You know, for me growing up, uh, especially when I was in school, the information that you could access was limited to only one of two things. What's in the library? Or if your family has access to them, what's in the Encyclopedia Britannica? That's it. So if you think in terms of technology being ubiquitous, 
Now every learner has access to information that's literally at their fingertips. So then now that's one piece. But then the other piece is how does it align with, with learner empowerment? So one of the metaphors that I love to uh, share is from Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, who's at the Ohio State, I believe she's still there, at the Ohio State University, is this whole idea around mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. And it's generally associated with texts that we consume. And the whole idea is that I should consume a text that uh, serves as a mirror, which means I see myself reflected in the text in any one of the following ways, either in the protagonist, uh, in the story itself, or in the author, or perfectly situation is all of the above. It affirms me from a, a, a cultural um, identity component. So there's where the uh, cultural responsiveness component comes in. Uh, and it helps me get a better understanding of, of who I am as an individual. Once I develop that awareness, I then can then should be able to engage in a learning experience that serves as a window, which means I learn about uh, I learn about the narratives of stories and experiences of anything that is an quote unquote other. Uh, and, and what it does is by learning about another, after I've understood myself more clearly, it helps me understand that in many cases, while we may look the same or we may have some sort of identity factors that are the same, our experiences are going to be different. And how does that frame who we are? And then in some cases, ideally, I can get the sliding glass door, which allows me to put myself into the lived shoes of another to be able to gain uh, not only a further understanding, but to utilize that to make a meaningful cross-cultural connection. And so you can't get that uh, with, a, with a degree of, of regularity and, and depth without technology. And in fact, my argument now is that it is impossible to truly have an equitable learning environment that is absent of technology. You even mentioned one of the other things I have in the article, student voice. I mean, I hear, first of all, let, let's be clear on something here. Whenever I hear educators say, well, I want to do something to give student voice, I always ask them, like, what do you, how can you give somebody something that they already have? Okay, what you want to do is you want to create the conditions for the student to develop that self-awareness, which, which is aligned with my one of my uh, um, conditions that I identify as learner empowerment, and technology is used to amplify that voice, or the technology is used to provide uh, different representations of learning. So, for example, uh, if you only limit students to be able to represent their learning in like a five-paragraph essay, then that means you're rewarding those that that prefer to write. Well, what if I like doing video? What if I like doing slides? What if there's something else that I want to be able to do? And my whole thing with that is how does technology provide access to that so that it serves as a degree of learner empowerment? And then in turn, in the learning environments, uh, it is, again, it is affirming and it is culturally responsive and culturally relevant. So in the end, it's not simply just putting devices in the hands of learners. It's putting the devices in the hands of learners, ensuring that they have access broadband. And then how are you using those devices that serves as uh, both an affirming component as well as an empowerment component? Yeah, I love that. A lot of that resonates with me. And, and I, I think I speak for a lot of teachers who have been teaching for a while in saying that one of the challenges is just adjusting to the changing nature in which students access technology. Like when, you know, I've been, I'm in the classroom now and I've been, I've been in the classroom for 18 years. And I remember that first year teaching, like utilizing technology maybe looked like taking the class down to the computer lab on campus right. and hopping on a desktop computer. And there were no logins, no nothing like that. You know, go to this database and find something for your paper or open up Microsoft Word and, and work on your essay there. Now it's it's very different. And as the school landscape changes and we usher more and more students into logging into these educational technology platforms, students are spending years of their schooling experience 
pumping massive amounts of data into the coffers of, of companies like Google and Apple and, and Amazon. And, and as a teacher, I see so much of that. You just log in here, log in there, do this, do that, that I can't help but be concerned with all this data that these companies are getting off of my students who are minors and what's going to end up happening to that data. And of course, that doesn't even bring in the fact that so many students are spending hours and hours on social media and you know all that data is being recorded as well. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to how would you frame this issue around student data and these ed tech platforms and what should educators like me be doing to perhaps help students learn to responsibly engage online? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And that is a critical factor. Um, my short, well, my somewhat short answer is all of the following. So one is for educators to uh, be truly informed about COPA and FERPA. So COPA is a Child on Online Privacy Protection Act and FERPA is a, uh, man, I can't remember. Family education, I can't remember. Anyway, COPA and FERPA. So be, be familiar and understand what those are. Recognize that, for example, if you're using Google um, within an educational domain, that data is not shared. Um, but also recognizing, for example, um, because I had dialogue, I've had, it hasn't been as much recently, but I've had a lot of dialogue with educators around privacy, security, digital use, digital citizenship, all those things. Number one, the minute a child is born right now, you already have a digital footprint. And, and I say, and you know how? Because your parents posted a picture of you online. So you already have a digital footprint. If you think in terms of how many of our records are now digitized, you have a digital footprint. What should be happening is a recognition of all of the following. What am I using? How am I using it? And how is a company utilizing what I think is the most valuable thing that we have, and that is our data. It's not how much money you got, it's your data, it's your usage, because they track patterns of usage um, among many other things that determine advertising, uh, the design of websites, uh, the availability of certain resources in certain areas, all, all those sorts of things. And so uh, when it comes to our students uh, and really even educators, it's as being as informed as you possibly can around what am I using? How is the data being used? Is it differentiated within an educational setting versus a consumer setting? Uh, and then also acknowledging that, look, we all know most of the kids today are using social media platforms. So you can either tell them don't use them or it's dangerous and it's the, you know, the whole straw man fallacy. Or you can say, look, what you want to do is recognize the fact that there's a reason why they make their terms of service 12 pages long and nobody ever really reads it. What you want to recognize is, am I engaged in behaviors, content production, or um, interactions with others, if you will, that five years from now, I can look back and not regret it. Ten years from now, I can look back and not regret it. Uh, am I truly representing myself in a way that um, I don't think will come back around to... Uh, you know, adversely affect me later. Um, I used to always even tell my students, when you're using some of these platforms and you're engaged online, if I were to Google your name, what am I going to find? And by the way, I will say this as well. When you think in terms of these digital platforms, uh, I remember doing a lecture. So we're 2021 right now, doing a lecture probably about nine years ago, where uh, the question came up around security. And I said, well, look, Everyone I know who is in the HR department of a Fortune 500 company tells me that whenever they get applicants, they usually Google their name and there's two major red flags. They don't find anything 
or they find things that are problematic. And I go, the fact that you don't find anything is problematic because it means that either one, you don't understand how commerce and communications work in a digital space, and you don't have any degree of a digital presence, even something like a LinkedIn profile, or two, you weren't mindful of how you're using these platforms and your posts and stuff that might pose a red flag when it comes to anything around privacy of the company or uh, you know things that you may do that aren't aligned with a company's um, you know code of conduct, if you will, or things like that. So it's not it's not this boogeyman that we have to avoid. It's take control over your usage. Try to develop a deeper understanding of how that usage is uh, serves the needs of the company, and then in some cases, flip that around and use it to your benefit. I used to always tell my students, "Look, you should have a LinkedIn profile and keep it updated. You never know where someone might search for you for a job. You might look for a job. Um, you'll have a digital presence." I had students that um, that didn't want to go to college. I had several students. They wanted to go to, for example, culinary arts school, and I was like, "You know what? Here's how you can use." technology your advantage. I'm like, you should create a YouTube channel. And every time you're creating a dish based on what you are learning, I would do it as an instructional video and then have some intro music, do your instruction, have some outro music. Now, not only do you have a digital presence, you're representing your voice and you're, uh, uh, you're, you're controlling your narrative. And if I'm looking to hire you and I do a search and I find this YouTube video and I see you explaining how you're creating a dish, What's the likelihood that I'm going to be more favorably responsive to you than someone who's applying and they're sending me a resume that's on a, on a two-dimensional piece of paper or three-dimensional piece of paper? So again, it's, it's not so much, it's all bad, don't do it. It's, I recognize that I have a responsibility as a consumer, user, and creator. Now I'm going to control my narrative when it comes to that. And I'm going to do it in a way that not only will I be able to look back upon it and not have any degree of regrets, but it might actually represent my voice in a way that could serve as a benefit to anything I might want to do or somebody else who might find value in consuming the content I produce. Yeah. You know, as you were talking there, Ken, you were making me think about um, so much of what you said makes so much sense, right? Uh, and also, I think, reflects your experience, expertise, depth of knowledge um, about these things. And frankly, I don't know how many educators have the same level of knowledge and expertise or even similar um, that you have uh, to be able to kind of play that that sort of advisory role to young folks, um, at least comfortably, right? Or sort of you right. know, off the cuff if a kid says, hey, come take a look at this. And it's like them doing something reckless that they're, you know, they're putting online or whatever, right? Um, so you're making me even think about the implications of this conversation on educator training, educator certification that like part of the work, um, you know, now also involves helping to guide and help students navigate, uh, just a, a vastly more complex digital landscape than, than even was in existence when, <laughs> when most educators in the field today, you know, went through their certification program. So, uh, fascinating uh, fascinating stuff there. Um, for our for our last question today, Ken, um, really really interested in getting your thoughts on this because for much of the last eighteen months, there there was just an explosion of articles, proposals, speeches, statements from like every foundation, nonprofit, district leader uh, across the country saying, you know, the pandemic is obviously 
really rough. And also, this is our opportunity to innovate. This is our opportunity to reinvent education. This is our top, our opportunity to think outside the box and you know those sorts of things. And I have to say, from my perspective, I certainly haven't visited every school in the country, but my perspective, uh, I, it feels like we have mostly reopened school and kind of gone back to to normal, right? We haven't moved goalposts, um, so to speak. We have a lot more Chromebooks and iPads and you know, teachers using online you know, learning management systems, but most of the stuff around that is the same. And so wondering if you could share some thoughts with our, with our audience about what would it look like to reimagine, innovate, et cetera, um, in our field? What maybe opportunity do we still have or did we miss um, coming out of the pandemic? And you know how like close, how near term are some of these things versus what might be you know a little a little further away for yeah, us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> one is for the audience. I would I would encourage everybody to really interrogate the use of that word reimagine. Who's using the word? And what is their prior experience? Because what I have found so far is there's a lot of white male educators that use the word reimagine and innovation, but what they're really talking about are just minor adjustments to the status quo. They're not talking about, and this is why actually, uh, to be honest with you all, I, I reject the use of the word disruption. If you think about it, what is, if you have a disruptive student in class, what, what, are they, what, what do we do? We respond to it to try to reorient the class or redirect it back to what previously was because it's a temporary change. My whole thing is we have to look at dismantle and abolish. So to answer your question, there's a number of things and I'll, I'll try to do it succinctly. So what should it be and what should it look like? Well, let's use data as one example. Why is it that in school districts that have a reasonably diverse demographic representation of students, a significant percentage of black and brown families have opted strictly for online learning. They do not want their child to go back face to face. Okay, so what is the disease? And that's now a symptom of it. Now I can share with you all the work I do with a lot of districts. I know what one of the diseases is. It's those learning environments are traumatic, dismissive, marginalizing and abusive. And so now I can control the environment a little bit further. I'm not subjected to the coercion, conformity and compliance that is centered around school because I now am at home and I just connect. And if, for example, in fact, a friend of mine, this is a true story, a friend of mine, her son connected to a class and one of his classmates wore a, um, wore a, a red hat with white lettering. And I'm not gonna tell you what the lettering was because you can probably guess and this was a student that had made um, inappropriate comments to her son. It was brought to the attention of the teacher and the teacher didn't do anything. So what did her son do? Just turn off, uh, turn, change the, uh, the video to where it was only the teacher. Didn't have to look at the classmates. You see, now I'm still there, but now I can control some things. Again, the control factor. So that's one part. What's going on in the culture of our learning environments that you are seeing when given the option, you are seeing a large volume of black and brown families that are opting for online only. Okay. Uh, and then of course, the sad part goes back to what we were talking about earlier. What about the families that would like to opt for that? They don't have internet access. Okay. Now, again, addressing the disease, which is what's going on in the environments that they're choosing that as the better option. Continuing on, when it comes to things like the mental health of educators, 
My whole thing is, why do we have a five-day school week? Why not have a four-day school week, block scheduling, longer class period of time? I remember I worked at a school where they shifted to block scheduling, and you had a lot of teachers like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I have two hours. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I was like, yes. And I told the kids, I'm like, they're shifting to block scheduling, which means we now have two hours to do our projects and have some fun and do some stuff. We're going to get some real stuff done because I don't have 55 minutes where I got to do it quick, 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 quick. And I remember the kids... I'll never forget this. The kids' reaction were like, they almost, they were cheering. They were like, that's awesome. Because they knew now we have more time to actually do some things. So again, four-day four day, uh, four school week, that fifth day should be a day for teachers to lesson plan, grade, collaborate, and deal with any of the, uh, the uh, what I would say, administrative stuff they have to do. Because otherwise, when are they going to do it? It's not fair to educators who expect them to perform the essential function of their job outside of their contracted hours. There's a reason why you have contracted hours. And if that's not enough time to do the essential function of your job, then you need to change how that time is allocated and distributed. Okay. Now, adding to that, the whole reimagine thing, why is it that you have pacing plans? Why is it that uh, most forms of assessment are the exact same? Why? I mean, I'll even go to one step further, which I brought this up in a talk I did recently. Um, back in from 2002 to 2004, uh, when I taught social studies at, at one of my previous schools, I didn't use the textbooks at all. I knew what the standards were. I knew what we needed to cover. And I, I literally said to the students, and thankfully, I had the support of the principal. And that's a key thing there is you've got to have the support, which I'll, I'll touch on that in just a moment. And so I remember going to the principal and I was like, you know what? I've got enough computers that half my class can be on a computer at, at one time while the other half isn't. I can have the students form uh, what I call collaborative work, work groups. And, and I can I can flip the whole thing over to where instead of us following the standards as a as a essentially like a prescribed formula for learning, because of my expertise around social studies, we're going to focus on a thematic approach. And I'm going to have the students look at history as intertwined, not linear. And my whole goal is I want every student to think like a historian, not just study history. So we're not going to study facts and figures. We're going to do it from a, um, a really critical and analytical approach. I did that for two years. That was in 03. And like I said, it was from 2002 to 2004. So two full school years. And then, of course, the principal left and the next principal came in and was like, no, you can't do that. Um, but my main point with that is that is an example of, of the reimagine where it's not it's not linear and we were doing things. I mean, I remember some of the overarching things were um, conflict, um, uh, social uh, uh, systems and hierarchies, um, migration and or mass movements of peoples. Uh, and um, I can't remember the other one. I think it was geo geopolitical constructs, something along those lines. Now think about when you're studying history from all those things, how things you look at now can connect to 100 years ago, 200 years ago. How can, how do, why do some of these things continue to repeat themselves? Why is it that certain things exist to maintain any degree of a social hierarchy, whether it's social class, race, ethnicity, language, all those? I would argue and I got feedback from many of my students that served as, again, let's go to learner empowerment, because ultimately I'm now learning alongside the students, not I'm lecturing or dictating them information that they now have to regurgitate to me to prove that they conform to the culture of that particular learning environment. So you have that aspect. And then the whole idea around, you know, uh, school or district leadership 
uh, one, being appropriately supported, but then two, recognizing that whatever policies are in place or whatever things you believe in, that actually serves as a guardrails for anything that an educator can do. So if you don't develop a self-awareness that, for example, like that, with that principal who came in and was like, I don't understand how you can do that, so therefore I don't want you to do it. Uh, and then I'm going to respond in a punitive way if you don't do what I say. That, 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 there, you see how they have to create the guardrail. So the whole idea around reimagine is to recognize and accept that the way our current system has been for generations doesn't work for everybody. And here's a sad part that I even bring up along race line. Not only does it disproportionately affect black and brown families more, it also affects white families when you bring in social class or geography. And then now how does that affect our society in general? Why is it that we have many uh, social challenges, you know, here in California, one is being water. Why does it still exist? And it has existed for generations, yet you've got all these children that are working their way through school systems now. And the whole idea is that school is school as it currently stands is meant to stratify and prioritize students, one student over another. And when you take a large volume of students and narrow it down to a select few that are the gifted or the, the ones that are the celebrated, how is it that a select few are going to solve many of our major problems, whether it's access to water, um, you know, developing uh, renewable uh, energy sources, um, streamlining communication systems, going back to the broadband internet access thing. I mean, all of those things. So the whole idea around reimagine has to be what needs to be abolished and dismantled, what needs to be tweaked, and what needs to be instituted that doesn't currently exist that serves as a mechanism for all learners to realize their full potential, whether they work their way K through 12 or even get into higher ed. We haven't even talked about higher ed. Maybe we'll save it for another episode. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, Ken, so appreciate your your words today. You've given us a tremendous amount to, to think about, um, and I'm sure uh, enough for, for another episode. Um, if our audience is interested in uh, learning more about you, maybe connecting with you or, um, you know, perhaps getting to, uh, to see one of the keynotes that you give, how can folks uh, find you um, online? So I use all the social medias. Um, I just set up my TikTok profile. I plan to start using that because I love short form video. Um, but ultimately, the best place to find me to at least serve as the central point is my website, which is kennethshelton.net. And that has links to all my socials. And that's where, you know, it has uh, uh, the different talks that I do. Um, I used to have a calendar there to say where I will be speaking, but I just use social media for that now. But that's, I would say that's the primary location. I do use Twitter quite heavily. I use Instagram. Uh, I don't really use YouTube, but like I said, I, I will, uh, I will, I made a personal goal of getting my profile set up and starting to post videos on TikTok after several dozen educators were like, dude, you need to be posting this stuff on TikTok. So I will do that as well. But, but ultimately my website again, which is kennethshelton.net. All right. You heard it, folks, KennethShelton.net. And uh, Ken, I'll just, I'll just let you know that after today's episode, you now officially use YouTube. Uh, <laughs> this, this will be available to all uh, there. <laughs> so um, thanks so much, Ken, for joining us today. And folks, that's it for today's seminar. Uh, next up is our Class Dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we've reached that time in the episode where we like to kind of slow down for a moment, hit pause, and give some flowers to people doing great things in the field of education. It's our class dismissed. And uh, Manuel, 
Who are we going to recognize today? Well, Jeff, seeing that our Do Now Today had two stories related to college, let's do a little shout out to those helping prepare students for college. And in this case, we're going to shout out Los Angeles Unified School District specifically for having a college and career fair that was in person, the first in-person college and career fair they've had since the before times, since the before times. And in this case, this was the first college and career fair that was specifically geared towards black students in Los Angeles Unified. So it happened in early November and it was an event where students, black students from, uh, particularly from South Los Angeles were uh, bust over to Southwest College and there were representatives from many, many colleges there. They were greeted by the Dorsey High marching band, music and dopeness all around. And some students who, who were there spoke about the fact that they were hearing about colleges that they hadn't heard of before and that some of their views of college and college options had been shifted because of this experience. And we just want to shout out the district for not hiding behind um, excuses in terms of like helping students gain information about college during this pandemic times. It would have been probably pretty easy, probably for the district just to say, no, shut all that down, keep it virtual. Um, but they realized that the virtual college fairs that they've tried in the past weren't really nearly as engaging as the in-person experience. So despite the challenges of the pandemic, they found a way to have a safe gathering, outdoor gathering for a college and career fair and specifically geared towards black students because knowing uh, what we know about education, black students often uh, get left behind in these ways. So shout out to them for, for making it happen. Yeah, uh, absolutely, man. Well, definitely want to um, co-sign on that and just add a couple of, of other flowers to the equation, which is um, got to gotta give it up to LA Unified, uh, a district that I do all of my work uh, or my main work with, um, because there really has been some increased attention in the, in the recent months on how the district is meeting the needs or not um, of black students. And so the district has rolled out a black student achievement plan and, um, you know, is really uh, attempting to pour resources into and, um, you know, really see some changes around curriculum, instruction, school culture, staffing and what's available for uh, for black students and families on campuses. And, you know, it's still early in terms of implementation, but um, gotta gotta give props where props are due in terms of putting our, our money where our mouth is and saying that our black students matter. Um, and we're gonna see them and recognize their talents and genius and invest in it. And so um, props to, to LA Unified, love the, the idea of the college fair. Sorry, I, I wasn't there to, uh, to be a part of it myself, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, Manuel, absolutely. Yep, indeed, good stuff, good stuff. All right, folks, that about does it for this episode of All of the Above. Thank you so much for tuning in. And again, all of the previous episodes, links to all the stories, all that good stuff can be found at our website, aotashow.com. Or if you scroll under this video or under this podcast, you'll see links to the Do Now stories and, and links to get more information about our guests today, Ken Shelton, and, and all that good stuff. So we appreciate the love. We appreciate the support. Please share this with a friend, uh, a colleague. Let folks know about us so we can continue. Continue to grow the AOTA show family. All right, folks, we'll see you next time.